Hey, everybody. Amy Scott here. I'm the host of How We Survive, and I'm joined by senior producer Caitlin Esch. Hi. We are hard at work on the next season. Really looking forward to sharing more with you about that. But we're dropping into the feed today really to say thank you. Because it's listeners like you who keep this podcast going and, of course, your generous donations. And as a thank you, today we're going to give you a little peek behind the curtain and kind of talk about how we make, how we survive. And we're going to play you a few stories to show you where your donations are going. And these are stories that we produced last season, but they may be new to you, podcast listeners, because they aired in our broadcast shows. So, Amy, last season was all about Miami and how completely out of whack the red-hot real estate market is with the extreme climate vulnerability of living in South Florida. Yeah. We spent months reporting on sea level rise and hurricane risk because, as we know, the climate crisis makes hurricanes stronger and wetter and more destructive. And right as we were about to launch the podcast, a monster Category 4 hurricane tore through Florida just north of where we were reporting. Talk about how we sprang into action. Yeah, so we, going into this reporting, we knew that might happen, right? We were talking about the risk of hurricanes and sea level rise in Florida. So we actually had a plan. Um, We had talked to a really interesting woman, Karen Clark, who runs a firm that does catastrophe modeling for insurance companies as part of a, a later episode. But we said, hey, Karen, if a hurricane hits Miami, can we come up to Boston and see how you do your work? Turned out the hurricane hit the other side of the Florida peninsula, but we uh, we did that anyway. So I jumped on a plane to Boston, hung out with a team of catastrophe modelers as they tracked the storm and estimated its potential damage. And then a few days later, uh, you and I hopped on planes to Sarasota and drove down to, to Fort Myers to see what was going on for ourselves. Yeah. And I had never reported from the aftermath of a hurricane before or a natural disaster of that magnitude. And I was just kind of stunned by the devastation and the people that we spoke to were really reeling from that loss. What sticks most with you about that reporting trip? Yeah, that was intense. I had never experienced anything like that either. Um, I mean, I think as we were driving down and we started to see more and more devastation, the further south we got and the closer to where the the eye wall passed, um, I was just stunned by things like the tops of trees blown off, just these little sticks of trees sticking up in the air and gas stations where the entire roof that covers the the pumps, you know, had had just flattened um, the whole thing, all the signs that were blown out. And then as we got into neighborhoods and people, I think this was about a week into people cleaning up, just the debris everywhere and the the sort of stricken looks on the faces of these folks who were cleaning up everything and not sure how they were going to recover. It was it was really eye-opening and, and scary. Yeah. Let's play one of your features from the aftermath of the hurricane. Thomas Eaton rode out the storm at his home in Northport, a small city on the Mayaka River. It was scary. I was watching the waves hit my bedroom window. Eaton's neighborhood is miles from the coast and was not under an evacuation order. 
But when Ian came, it sat over Northport, dumping more than 20 inches of rain over three days. Eaton says floodwaters rose to about four and a half feet inside his house. The water was coming through the walls. I thought I was going to see Jesus, man. I just laid on my bed and watched out the window and just watched it all. I met Eaton at a temporary shelter up the road from Northport at Venice High School. Inside the gym, about a hundred air mattresses are spread out across the floor. An elderly man in American flag shorts rests on one of them as a woman gently washes his feet. The shelter is operated by the county school district. Jody Smith is a social worker with the district. Instead of counseling students, on this day she's helping storm victims. Right now we're just focusing on keeping families safe and fed. If they need a shoulder, we're a shoulder. If they need a blanket, we get them a blanket. Do you need spoons? Hey, sir, do you want a spoon? An afternoon ice cream delivery brings a welcome distraction from the trauma. And make sure it's chocolate. When Ian hit, Passion Presley and her daughter, Ronisha Taylor, spent a terrifying night at home as the winds of more than 100 miles per hour pounded their windows. Oh, we were praying. I felt like Dorothy on the Wizard of Oz. The adults took turns bracing the doors with their bodies while the kids sheltered in a closet. Were they scared? Yeah, they were scared. They were scared. The family of seven made it through the night, but then couldn't escape the floodwaters. For almost a week, they were stuck in their house without power or Internet access until finally a pair of airboats came to rescue them. It looked like a swamp with houses like on top of the wall. And they're still recovering bodies. And then the road is completely closed, and we don't know when we'll be able to even check the house to make sure we don't have any damages inside. So they wait. Presley says T-Mobile donated some phones so people could call family members and insurance companies. I met 72-year-old Nina Migliaccio standing outside the gym, holding a little black-and-white dog with a pink leash. This is Candy, six years old, Chihuahua. Migliaccio and her husband Carl had been in the shelter almost a week. The Red Cross had finally arrived that day, and Migliaccio was eager to get medical help. She was almost out of her medicine. We need doctor attention. My husband disabled, and myself, I have uh, leukemia. Given all she'd been through, Migliaccio looks remarkably put together in a clean striped shirt and cargo pants with silver sandals. Turns out these are the clothes she evacuated in. She's been washing them in the shower, then wearing them in the sun to dry out. She wasn't sure when they'd be able to return home. Big chunks of the roof were missing. And she wasn't sure how much their insurance would cover. We cannot go back. You must have a roof. You must have a roof. Though she'd been able to rescue Candy, they'd had to leave behind their African gray parrot, Rocky. I worry because, you know, over one week uh, he was without water. So the next day I drive to Northport to see if I can check on Rocky. The water has receded on Migliaccio's street, but evidence of the damage is everywhere. Man, it's really something. You can see big pieces of the roof blown off. There's just debris strewn all through the yard. A blue, maybe propane tank. Mangled pieces of roof and gutters. 
I walk around back, past the small swimming pool filled with black water, and peek inside, where a large birdcage sits empty. I give Nina Migliaccio a call. She says the cage is empty because someone came by with the police to rescue Rocky. This lady come from Sarasota and they came. Well, that's good. I'm glad he's in good hands. Yes, yes, yes. Migliaccio says she and her fellow evacuees have been told they'll be moving from the high school to a recently closed hospital in Venice, where she's looking forward to having a private room. When I look around her neighborhood, it's clear it's going to be a while before she and Carl can come home. The rebuilding process has only just begun. In Northport, Florida, I'm Amy Scott for Marketplace. So, Caitlin, I actually talked to Nina Migliaccio recently. Uh, There was a study that came out um, showing that the the kind of wind from hurricanes that folks in the Fort Myers area faced um, is going to increase in the coming years. And because of the way climate change is impacting hurricanes and hurricane strength, that risk is going to move both further inland and further north uh, in the eastern United States. Um, And so I I caught up with Nina just to see how she was doing. And five months later, she was still waiting for her Mm. roof to be fixed and battling her insurance company for reimbursement. So another story that you did that really sticks with me was about the danger of extreme heat. Yeah. Heat, it turns out, is, according to the first chief heat officer in the country in Miami, who we spoke to, is is the number one killer in terms of climate risks. And Florida, you know, has always been a hot place, but the number of days that are going to be unsafe uh, for people um, is just going to keep increasing. Let's play that piece that you did for the broadcast show. In Miami's little Haiti neighborhood, an older couple, Rosalind and Edser, sit outside in the shade under a tent. We don't like to stay stuck inside the house too much, now. We like out fresh air, you know. We agreed to use just their first names since they're about to share personal medical information. They're getting a visit from Dr. Cheryl Holder. But I wanted to just check in and see how you guys are doing with your... Blood pressure. Holder is an internist and does home visits through a program at Florida International University. Etzer is retired after an injury. Before I retired, I was working in a hotel, restaurant, and landscaping. I was sponsored. Rosalind supplements their Social Security income by collecting sneakers and shipping them to Haiti to sell. So we try to make it small as it is. It's early in the morning, but it's already almost 90 degrees out and so humid. This was early September during a late summer heat wave. Sometimes the sun coming hot. I stay in my house because I got AC. But Etzer holds up an unpaid bill from the power company. They owe about $220. And if they don't take care of it within the next three days, the power company is threatening to shut off their service. We're just struggling, you know. Utility bills have been rising with inflation. Etzer says he doesn't know where the money will come from. It's a matter of health. Both Rosalind and their son suffer from asthma. Heat and humidity make it worse. My wife, she get a, she get a high blood pressure, asthma. When she stand up so much, she foot swelling. 
cannot stand up. As we're talking, Dr. Holder tends to Roslyn. When was the last time you took some blood pressure medicines? Uh, I got uh, two months. I can check with the, the our clinic and see if we have any for free. Okay, that'd be better. That'd be help me out. Thank you. Dr. Holder checks Rosalind's blood pressure. Pretty high today. Yeah. But I want to bring you inside in the cool. It's too hot out here now. But then Rosalind tells Holder about a strange and concerning symptom, numbness on the side of her face. Can you bring your arms straight up in front like this? Straight up. Okay, great. Can you squeeze okay. my fingers as hard as you can? Squeeze, 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 squeeze. At which point, Dr. Holder cuts off the interview. She says Rosalind needs to get to the hospital. Um, Amy, I have to end. I have to take care of her. Rosalind gets the treatment she needs and is doing much better. But this is exactly why public health officials are so concerned about the chronic stresses of heat. It can exacerbate existing problems like high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, and mental health issues. And at worst, heat can be deadly. It's the number one killer of all climate impacts. Jane Gilbert is the chief heat officer of Miami-Dade County. More than the flood risks, uh, more than hurricanes, forest fires, and many researchers will say it's more than all of those combined. She was appointed last April, the first heat officer in the country. Gilbert says her first priority is to raise public awareness of the danger and what people can do to protect themselves. The county is also trying to slow warming by drawing down carbon and taking steps to cool Miami by planting a million trees, especially in low-income neighborhoods. We have certain neighborhoods that have less than 10 percent tree canopy. We know that those are also where people are showing up in emergency rooms with the highest number of heat-related illnesses. Miami-Dade is also retrofitting buildings to make them more energy efficient and updating codes to require cool roofs that have reflective surfaces. And for the 30 percent of households that struggle to pay the A.C. bill, like Roseland and Etzer, there are grants. Dr. Holder's team managed to get the family a grant to pay their utility bill, so the lights and the A.C. will stay on for another month. I'm Amy Scott for Marketplace. So obviously so much of what we hear about the climate crisis is terrifying. I mean, the natural disasters, the heat exposure we just heard about, death and destruction. But, you know, we set out really to find out what we can do. I mean, that's the title of our podcast, How We Survive. But I find it uplifting to know that we have the tools and the technology now to make the changes we need to reduce carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions and mitigate the worst impacts of the climate crisis, we also have a lot of tools to adapt. Yeah, we just have to do it. (laughs) Yes. Um, And we spend a lot of time reporting on solutions. What sticks with you about those stories? Yeah, I think one of the things that sticks with me, and we saw this after Hurricane Ian, is that the newer houses that are built to these really strict building codes that we looked into, they hold up better. And so there are ways that we can build our environment to better prepare for disaster. 
I'm not saying it's going to be perfect, and it certainly is not going to be cheap, but we know how to build stronger, and I think that gives me a little bit of hope for folks who are living on the coast who are facing these increased risks. Yeah. Let's listen to a piece that you did about how some places will survive rising seas. Hop on the narrow Lake Pontchartrain Bridge in New Orleans, drive 35 miles north across the lake, and you'll get to the historic resort town of Mandeville. Right on the shore, just yards from the water, sits a stately white house with an American flag in the front yard. The style is typical Louisiana Creole, with a deep front porch and big black storm shutters. Only what used to be the ground floor is now 15 steps up. Well, y'all, come on in and sit down. Can we offer you some ice water? (laughs) Leonard and Becky Rohrbau own this house. It was built in 1843. It's been in Leonard's family since the early 1900s. And it survived a lot of storms. Well, Katrina was the worst. In 2005, when this house was just three feet off the ground, Hurricane Katrina sent waves from the lake rushing under the house, inches from going inside. The streets just look like pickup sticks, telephone poles, trees, power wires everywhere. It took us 45 minutes climbing up and over and under trees to get to the house to discover that it was still here. But the foundation was badly damaged. Then, seven years later, Hurricane Isaac roared through, bringing the lake once again nearly into their house and eating away at the foundation. We said, okay, we got to go up. So up they went. In 2016, they hired a contractor to dig tunnels under the house, lift it with hydraulic jacks, and build a new, higher foundation underneath. And we'd go to a few blocks away to the house where we were renting to stay while this was going on. And every night I would just pray that my house didn't topple over. The whole process took about three months and a quarter of a million dollars, which they covered with some small grants and a low-interest disaster loan. Becky had just retired as a banker. Leonard used to work in the oil industry. They used the space underneath the house for storage. It's covered with a decorative lattice. From the outside, it looks like a totally normal and attractive house. And when Ida hit last year and devastated the region, they fared okay. Lake Pontchartrain just flows under our house and out the backyard. And then when this wind's done, it all goes back down into Lake Pontchartrain. Gravity takes over. And that makes it a lot easier to clean up. Mandeville is a charming town, full of historic buildings and the world's oldest continuously operating jazz hall. But in the past few decades, it's faced regular flooding from rising seas and more intense storms. We've had 17 floods in 17 years since Katrina. Roderick Scott is a longtime Mandeville resident and board chairman of the Flood Mitigation Industry Association. He says in the years since Katrina, more than 85 percent of buildings in the lake surge zone have been elevated. Mandeville is the laboratory, and we literally are lifting two or three right now. Uh, Every month, a couple of them go up. At first, as with any lab, he says there were mistakes. We walk by what must have been a cute wooden house now perched way up on these oversized brick columns with cars parked underneath. It's kind of like you're seeing into someone's garage. 
we've got some ugly ones that came up first, and, and we realized right away we didn't want to do that again. Since then, the town has adopted architectural guidelines. Mandeville is a pretty wealthy town, and a lot of homeowners have paid for their own elevations. FEMA grants and a federal loan program starting next year will help others. But with at least a couple feet of sea level rise expected by the end of the century, Scott says moving up only buys so much time. We feel the the rate at which the sea level is rising that we've got two more mortgage cycles at the shore before we have to move buildings back. That's about 60 years. The good news, he says, is once you've lifted a house off the ground, it's easier to move it to a new location in the future. In Mandeville, Louisiana, I'm Amy Scott for Marketplace. That is all we have for today. Thank you so much, listeners. We will be back in your feed soon with more reporting about how we'll survive the climate crisis. Caitlin, you want to take us out? Marketplace is supported by listeners like you. You are essential to helping Marketplace remain an independent public service newsroom. That sets us apart from other newsrooms. Plus, you ensure that we have resources and staff to dedicate to important topics like climate change. So please give what you're able. Every donation makes a big difference. Go right now to marketplace.org survive or find a link in the show notes. Thank you so much. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.